0: The following was written by Bob in the late 1990s. Where were you at Christmas in 1944? Most of you weren't even born. Many of you forgotten, after all, it was more than 50 years ago. But we remember. We remember very well Christmas of 1944. Meteorologists say it was the worst winter all across Europe in their memory. It was cold, very cold. The ground frozen, the snow squeaked under your feet. But the worst was the wind. North wind off the Baltic blew right through you. We had no tree, nor candles in the window, or presents to exchange, but hoarded food for the past months would hopefully give us Christmas dinner. At dusk, the lights go off, but before settling into the night, someone starts to sing. One room joins in. We were not good, but we were loud. Soon the lights on the goud towers warned us to shut up, so time for bed. There was one blanket per man even fully dressed with overcoat and cap it was not enough two men two blankets far warmer alone with our thoughts of home and family we heard or perhaps sensed the music of wartime europe the air raid sirens starting to sing their nightly song as the bombers moved east more and more cities and towns joined in the warning pencils of light searched the dark sky for our friends gradually the warning shut down and the all clear was sounded We got our present hope and jerry got his bombs as sleep began to set in the barracks shook snow swirled into the air and a tremendous roar came hit and left all at the same time a mosquito had called the sirens and the lights were much too late these plywood twin-engine british planes crisscrossed germany many a night no sleep no rest this is war they knew where the camps were located and whenever possible gave us a buzz. This Christmas night, you could almost hear the pilots say, hang in there, Yanks. You'll be home next year. And we were, but we remember Christmas of 1944. carried every shell and bullet, every can of fuel, every mouthful of rations, every long-awaited cigarette. Welcome back to part eight of my grandfather's journey through World War II. The winter of 1944 into 1945 was brutal. Not only weather-wise, but the Germans started losing ground to the Allies, and the tide of the war was turning in the Allies' favor. Bob's last letter home he wrote was on January 6, 1945. It would not write another letter home until the war was over. Most other POW camps throughout the eastern parts of Germany, like Stalag Luft III and Stalag Luft IV, both in present-day Poland, began to evacuate in late January and February, prisoners were marched hundreds of miles in sub-zero temperatures without shelter and with minimal food, only to prevent them being overtaken by the Red Army. Some of these POW refugees arrived at Stalag Luft 1, where the camp began to suffer from overcrowding. The guys in room 9 mentioned people sleeping in their hallways several times during interviews. The Stalag Luft 1 prisoners began to prepare for a similar fate. They were told by the German command to make sleds and sew rucksacks out of garments, in order to carry their belongings on the journey to a new camp, deeper into the German Reich. The order to move never materialized, and the men made it through one of the worst winters in recent memory. I don't have much information on what was going on in the camp for the remaining months of winter and early spring. By most accounts, everyone was in survival mode. Food became more inconsistent, which pretty much dictated everything. The new senior Allied officer in the camp was Colonel Herbert Hub Zemke. Who replaced colonel spicer who at this point is in solitary awaiting his trial for his speech to the men at roll call that we detailed last episode colonel zemke stands at the heart of the liberation of stalag left one and why it was so different from the liberation of other pow camps zemke commanded the 56th fighter group known as zemke's wolf pack After 154 missions and 17 confirmed aerial victories, he went down in his P-51 on October 30th, 1944, and arrived at Stalag Luft 1 in December of 1944. The son of German immigrant parents, Zemke was fluent in German, a skill which would aid in his later negotiations with the German camp officials. Just around the time that Zemke arrived in the camp, the conditions began to deteriorate for the men in Stalag Luft 1. German power lines were ripped away in several vital places, and their electric lights were out for over a month. The water went on and off periodically as well, and they were caught short several times because they didn't have enough containers to store any water. In February, the Germans also cut off the Red Cross parcels, which had helped to sustain POW life by supplementing the meager German rations. At this point, the POWs became too weak to do anything but lie in their bunks and dream about food. The resilient men of Stalaglof I made it through the winter, and then in mid-April as the Red Cross lifeline was reopened and the security restrictions relaxed, morale soared as suspicions were that the Germans knew that they were beat and they wanted to make nice. The shift in attitude was evident, and around this time some of the German guards even began to salute Colonel Zemke, something that never previously happened. And plans were made by Colonel Zemke for a peaceful power transfer in the camp. He even had signs posted in the camp in plain sights for Camp Commandant Oberts von Warnstedt, who assumed control in January of 1945, detailing how the enemy would be treated fairly once the surrender happened. There was constant artillery booming in the distance. In Germany's largest underground newspaper, the POW, which stood for Prisoners of War Waiting on Winning printed in Stalag Luft 1 from May of 1944 to May of 1945, reported in the April 14th issue that Patton's army was advancing in the West and that the Russians were approaching Germany from the East, just having taken Vienna. The paper, which grew into a daily two-sheeter with an eight-page Sunday supplement, consisted mainly of the news transcribed from the BBC reports from that secret radio that the British had. The reports were typed, they were copied via Carbon, and distributed one per barracks, where they were devoured by the news-hungry prisoners. In late April, they followed the progress of the war avidly and wondered about their fate as captives and which front would reach them first. In the last days of April, Commandant von Varnstedt met with Zemke and tried to order the entire camp to take to the road, just steps ahead of the Russians advancing rapidly from the east. Zemke refused and held his ground. Zemke, knowing the weak and under-equipped state of the remaining German guards, flatly refused to budge, and the Germans had neither the ammunition, the manpower, or the stomach for a massacre, so they departed without them. They agreed that von Warsted and the guards would leave under the cover of darkness and head towards the American lines to surrender. Former POW pilot Richard Terrell wrote in a diary he kept at the time, quote, Jerry pulled out tonight, Americans manned the towers at 1.10 a.m., And on May 1st, 1945, the prisoners of Stalag 1 woke up to no captors. Colonel Zemke ordered the liberated American POWs to stay put and wait for air transport out together. It was safer and easier if everyone stayed put and waited for help to come to them instead of going and finding the American lines on their own. With the exception of around 700 POWs who could no longer be held back and took to foot to make their way independently back to the Allied lines, Most of the POWs were still in Stalag 1 to celebrate VE Day, which means victory in Europe, on May 8th, which was the official end of the war in the European theater. And Bob was one of the 700-plus POWs that disobeyed Colonel Zemke's stay-put order, and they took their chances by leaving the camp. Bob and the others that left looked at Colonel Zemke's plan a bit differently. Bob felt that the colonel wanted to keep everyone there so he could bring them all back, and that would look really good for him and his fellow commanders. Bob's quote telling this story was, quote, Who the hell are you? You're not going to tell me what to do. End quote. Bob, along with seven other friends, crawled under the wire and headed off on their own. For Bob, it had been 10 months of captivity at Stalag Luft 1, over 300 days of twice a day roll call, cold showers, walking in circles in the camp, feeling hungry, feeling homesick, being cold, being hot, on top of the trauma of being shot down out of the sky, jumping through flames to parachute out of your own airplane, and by some miracle your chute opens up. Add all that shit up plus a million other things that we don't even know about, and yet Bob was ready to get out of the prison camp and start living. The eight of them made their way into Barth to steal, or as Bob put it, liberate some bicycles. In town they met up with an old Russian man and a young Russian girl who had a wagon being pulled by a horse. The guys figured they wanted to head towards the Russian lines instead of the British lines, and traveling with some Russians sounded like a great plan. The old man had enough English and or sign language skills to communicate with the new American companions. These Russians also left a POW camp, and they were on their way home. Bob described the young girl as mentally gone. She only had one eye, and she had been through so much she had lost her mind. So you get the Russians in the wagon and eight ex-POWs riding bikes with flat tires or simply on the rims, or at times just walking the bikes along, because it was better than walking. As the group made their way south, whenever they would encounter German troops, the Russians would kind of get behind the American prisoners, and the Germans would try to surrender to the Americans. Bob and the guys didn't have any weapons, but the Germans knew the war was over, they lost, and they knew Hitler was dead, and they just wanted to survive. They knew they were safer in American hands than the Russians, obviously bob and the guys had no way to take care of these prisoners so they refused their request and the german troops moved along and left them alone and conversely when they would run into russian troops the americans would kind of get behind the old man and the girl and let the russians do the talking and the russian troops they would encounter were kazakhs they were mongolian soldiers on horseback the more experienced regular red army troops were closer to berlin It was a good thing they had a Russian with them because the troops they encountered were wild. The Russian troops treated Bob and his friends well. The old Russian would tell the Mongolian troops that they were bombers and they had bombed women and children in hospitals. And the Russian troops thought that was awesome. And we have to remember the Russians had been in total war for years. Germany had leveled their country. They had nothing left. So you can kind of understand their mindset of, kill anyone for anything if they were responsible for what happened to my homeland so the fact that bob and his bomber buddies bombed german cities and yes i'm sure some women children and hospitals did get hit in the process they got along with the russians really great so let me paint the picture of what running into russian troops meant these mongolian troops would be on horseback probably four or five of them per squad and they had all had machine guns and a shitload of ammunition Their orders were to get to a certain place, kill as many Germans as you can along the way, and once you reach whatever that objective point is, you're free to go home. So given the looseness of these orders, the lack of any oversight, and everyone's eagerness to kill everything, you can imagine the chaos just galloping through Germany. And Bob described this stage of the war as, quote, unusual. You know, he had heard of the great German panzer divisions... But all he was seeing as they went through Germany was wagons and horses. There'd be piles of dead and bloated horses. The Russians are riding around shooting fucking everything that moved. They were nice to the Americans, but man, they were brutal to any German or German civilian. Bob said no one ever got killed by one bullet. The Russians would empty their entire magazines every time they pulled the trigger. They were the type of people that would use a machine gun to kill a chicken. Needless to say, good people to be friends with. The Russian soldiers helped them find lodging for the first night. In Germany, a lot of the farmhouses would be way off the road, a couple hundred feet off the road. So this is how you would get food and lodging in 1945 if you had a machine gun and you were all out of fucks to give. They'd send one Russian, would ride down the driveway, shooting his machine gun into the sky. The poor German farmer and his wife would come to the door, and the Russian would say, Essen! Essen, which I guess meant something to eat. The Germans would feed everyone and let them sleep in the house. So just picture this. Bob's first night in 10 months, not spent in the barracks, crammed into a 24 by 16 foot room with 18 other guys, is spent in a German farmhouse with seven of his friends and a dozen or so Mongolian soldiers on horseback, men and women. And I'm just picturing like a middle school dance situation. The, the shy XPOWs on one side of the room and the rowdy Mongolian troops on the other side of the room. The Russians are drinking. The women with them are just as tough as the men. They have machine guns, ammo belts over their shoulders. And they would also have some like accordions or, or music boxes around their necks. So you could just imagine what is going through the Americans' head At this point, watching the Russian, you know, Woodstock with machine guns. And Bob was funny. He was like, every time they reached for something, you'd flinch because you weren't sure if they were going for their machine gun or their accordion. And in the morning, everyone would wake up and go back to work. The Mongolian troops would ride off to continue to rape and pillage the German countryside. And Bob and the other Americans went back to trying to find the Russian front lines. Now, at this time, you also had Mongolian troops who had reached their objective. They made it to wherever part in Germany they were supposed to go. Now, they were free to go. They were freed from their duty. And Bob told the story of Mongolian troops getting a wagon and just looting German houses and buildings. They'd be taking the windows out of the house. They'd be ripping the wallpaper off the wall. They'd take the pictures off the walls. They took everything that wasn't bolted down. They'd throw it in the wagon, and they'd just start heading home right, to rebuild. Most of these soldiers didn't have anything to go home to. So they would just steal as much shit as they could to start over when they got back to Russia. Bob and the seven other XPOWs are on their own, and they come to another farmhouse at night. And as they approach the house, a young woman comes out, and the guys try to use their best sprechen, say, Deutsch to ask for food. And the young woman looks right at him and asks in perfect English if they're American. And the guys say, yeah, and they proceed to fill her in on what happened, where the camp they came from in their journey. Well, it turns out this young lady is in the house with 12 other young ladies, ranging from 18 to 25 years old. So they invite the guys in. It turns out these girls were all from the Baltic regions. So Czechoslovakia, Albania, that area. And they were sent to labor camps as soon as the war started. So they had been in labor camps since they were 10 or 12 years old. Same story with them. They woke up one morning and the guards were gone, so they just started walking home. And they had been at this farmhouse for about two or three days. The girls were very nice. They offered the men food. They went out to the farm and got a pig and slaughtered it and cooked it up for them. And these young women were absolute badasses. They had spent the last six plus years in a labor camp. They taught themselves several languages. Right? Most Europeans could already speak two or three languages, but these women could speak five, six, seven different languages. Not to mention, you know, kill and butcher a pig with their bare hands. And before this night turned into every man's fantasy, there was a knock at the door. And it was a Russian officer on a motorcycle. And he saw the number of young women and decided this would be a nice place to crash. So the guy with the gun always knows best. So Bob and his buddy stayed in one room, while the luckiest Russian officer in the world spent the night with the girls. In the morning, the girls came in and woke Bob up and told them that the officer on motorcycle was an advance scout for the Russian troops looking for places to crash. So it was time to go. So Bob and his buddies started heading southwest, and the women went southeast. And later that day, around lunchtime, the men stopped at another farmhouse to try to get some food. They left Roy out at the end of the driveway to watch the bikes, and the other guys walked down the long driveway to the front door. And when they got to the front door, all they heard was Roy yelling. Roy was losing his shit. So the guys go running back out to the road to find Roy arguing with four MPs in an American Jeep, and they were towing a four-wheel rubber-tired wagon of hay. So Roy is arguing with four heavily armed men to get a ride to the American lines. And these men didn't have any markings on their uniforms other than those MP armbands. And they were driving an American Jeep, and they did speak English. So one of the MPs has said, well, how many are you? Eight of us. Get in. Keep your mouth shut. If you don't, you're out. Little weird, but okay. So the eight guys pile in the wagon of hay. And then they discover there are a few guys under the hay in handcuffs. Okay, so shit just keeps getting weirder, but no one wanted to risk losing their ride. So no one inquired about the handcuffed men and their feet. Nothing was said, as the jeep made two or three stops at various Russian command posts. Two guys would stay in the jeep, two guys went in to speak with the Russians, get back in the jeep, and they would continue on. As dusk approached, they needed to find a place to stay, so they stopped out at a farm. The MPs went in, checked out the house, and after it was clear, they told Bob and the boys to sleep in the barn. Then they brought them out some food, and Bob did notice that the guys in handcuffs got to stay in the house. So who were these high-value targets? The next morning, right back in the Jeep, handcuffed prisoners right back under the hay, and they drove to the Russian-American lines. Jeep pulls up to the Russian gate. The MP turns around and tells Bob the following. We're going to cross this bridge, and when we get to the other side, you guys got to get out and start walking towards the river. You run into the American outpost. Just tell them you got a ride or you walked. Doesn't matter, but we will not be there. So the MPs flashed some credentials, the Russians opened up their gate, and the jeep crossed over the bridge. And on one side of the bridge was the Russian checkpoint and then the American checkpoint. Bob and his friends got out of the wagon, and they walked back across the American lines on the day the war officially was over. It was May 8th, 1945, VE Day. And the Russians were all on horses. And they have big horses. An army would consist of four or five of them. That's it. And they'd just gallop along, and anything they saw, they'd just shoot with machine guns. Nobody ever got killed by one bullet. They got, you know, used the whole damn cartridge, roll roller, slaughter everything.